You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live-fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Marriott discloses a major data breach. Another insecurely configured Elasticsearch database is found, this one belonging to a secure cloud backup provider. More spear phishing from Pyongyang. The U.S. Justice Department IG sees systemic problems with the FISA warrant process. Updates on the House Party affair. Huawei suggests that Beijing will retaliate against more sanctions from Washington. And more COVID-19 notes concerning the cyber sector. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, April 1st, 2020. Marriott International yesterday disclosed that it had sustained a data breach that affected as many as 5.2 million guests. No pay card, passport, or other identification document data were taken, but the hospitality company says that personal customer contact information, like names, mailing addresses, email addresses, and phone numbers, loyalty account information, partnerships and affiliations, and preferences, what guests wanted in a room, what language they preferred to speak, were all compromised. The company's investigation concluded that login credentials of two employees at a franchise property were used to access the data. The improper access is thought to have begun in January and was discovered at the end of February. Guests whose information was compromised are said to have been notified by email. Researchers at VPN Mentor report finding a data leak at SOS Online Backup. The secure cloud backup provider is thought to have exposed more than 135 million customer records. The exposure was traceable, the researchers say, to a misconfigured Elasticsearch database. Security firm ESET is describing a spear phishing campaign run by North Korea's Gumung-121 threat group, Computing Reports. The operators are going after people, people in South Korea mostly, who are interested in North Korean refugees and North Korean politics in general. This is the operation ESET has called Operation Spy Cloud, after the group's use of Google Drive and PicCloud to prospect its victims. Gumung-121 is associated with Thallium, APT-37, and Reaper operations, and ESET thinks that the APT's reappearance represents an attempt to re-establish itself after Microsoft's takedown of some 50 malicious domains it had used in earlier campaigns. The U.S. Justice Department Inspector General has released the report on the FBI's conduct with respect to the Foreign Intelligence and Surveillance Act. The decidedly starchy report found that conduct not only distinctly wanting, 
but also of long duration. Problems with the Bureau's handling of FISA matters predate the 2016 U.S. elections. The IG was particularly concerned about the way the Bureau handled requests for FISA surveillance warrants. The findings in the latest report go beyond the 17 issues the IG surfaced in the earlier look at Operation Crossfire Hurricane, and they suggest that there are deeper systemic issues with the FISA process, quite independent of any agents' or officials' biases, commitments, or individual misconduct. The systemic issues largely come down, apparently, to insufficient and defective oversight of the process itself. Institutional weaknesses, the Washington Post calls them. TechCrunch has an update on the House Party affair. No breach, no evidence yet of conspiracy, but the customary privacy concerns any free service brings. House Party collects a great deal of information about its users, and it describes what it does with that information in what TechCrunch describes as a 12,000-word privacy policy. It need hardly be said that many users of an online hangout will not attend to the details of a service's data handling policies with the same care they might give to, say, the closing documents in the purchase of a house. In any case, House Party does promise to anonymize and aggregate the data it collects, and there's no reason to doubt its sincerity of purpose. But data can be toxic, and privacy hawks are made skittish by this kind of collection. The U.S. is considering imposing stiffer restrictions on Huawei, ones that would cut the Chinese manufacturer off from its U.S. chip suppliers. Wired worries that the main effect of such restrictions would be to jumpstart a domestic Chinese chip industry. But Huawei has worries of its own about the sanctions. These are sufficiently troubling that it moved the company's rotating chairman, Eric Zhu, to tell CNBC that, quote, the Chinese government would not sit there and watch Huawei being slaughtered, adding... I do believe there would be countermeasures. The COVID-19 pandemic continues to draw scammers along in its wake. Everything from bogus cures to fish bait to pranks pulled for the lulls are accumulating at what the Washington Post calls unprecedented numbers. One index of how widespread the fraud is may be seen in figures the U.S. Federal Trade Commission reported yesterday. Complaints about coronavirus scams the FTC has received so far this year doubled over the course of a single week. Quote, The top categories of coronavirus-related fraud complaints include travel and vacation-related reports about cancellations and refunds, reports about problems with online shopping, mobile texting scams, and government and business imposter scams. In fraud complaints that mention the coronavirus, consumers reported losing a total of $4.77 million, with a reported median loss of $598. End quote. It's hard to believe it's been only a few short weeks since many of us gathered together at the 2020 RSA conference. A lot has changed since then, and I'd wager it's safe to say most of us look forward to having the option of getting together face-to-face to to catch up and talk shop. Monzi Mirza is VP of Security Research at Splunk, and always interesting to catch up with. We spoke at RSA. I like to reflect on it from really from the perspective of our customers, because that's really my biggest sort of input data point. Mm -hmm. And those big points are automation orchestration is very much top of mind for customers. Evolution of cloud application services and how that permeates through their operations on a day-to-day basis. How does something that happened in the cloud affect what happens on-prem? How does something that happens on-prem affect what's happening in the cloud? And so that sort of really dynamic, non-traditional security operations 
uh, is, is top of mind for customers. I mean, I know Splunk says data to everything and our customers are very much in that loop to say it is data to everything. It's not just about data from a firewall or an endpoint, traditional security things. It's all the things, apps, services, cloud infrastructures, on-prem infrastructures. So, and of course, there is a, a lot of that is being underpinned now with, with the expansion and, and become really the reality of practical AI and machine learning. And, and so that's, that, those are really the things on top of mind for customers. Looking forward, as the industry continues to evolve and mature, how do you see things sort of settling out, this distillation process? You know, the companies that are all offering services, the tools themselves, what's in your crystal ball as we look towards the future? I break it down to maybe three three layers in my head. The first one is I think companies who are focused on platforms are really the ones who are going to be a key player in the future mm. and being able, be able to serve their customers better. So, so one is going to be the platform component. I think the second component is going to be companies that are really, really focused on large scale without kind of calling themselves necessarily for security only or for IT only or for this other case only. And then the third one is organizations who are focused on essentially what I like to call the consumerization of security operations or the, con or, or the consumerization of, of security analytics. I think whoever takes those three approaches is going gonna, is gonna to have success. And, and when we dive deeper, some of these are actually in conflict with each other just a little bit. Hmm. So, but, but let me break it down a little bit as to why I believe that. So first on the okay. platform side, you have to have these platforms because there is this explosion, everything from cloud and apps and services on-prem, lots and lots of different point products. And all this data has to be collected. All these things have to be connected to each other and, and bi-directionally from an automation orchestration point of view or, or detect investigator response point of view. So if you don't have a platform, if you're just doing a point thing, then you're not going to be very successful because the world is pretty complex now. And I guess it always was. We're seeing more of it now. Yeah. On the second layer of, of really being data agnostic is this ability to bring things in so that the user doesn't necessarily have to concern themselves with it. Because if you can't do that, then the user's constantly going to get stuck. There's going to be low time to value, essentially, and you're not going to survive. And the third thing around consumerization is people are going to work where they're going to work. This whole notion that I'm going to go into a SOC and do something, we're a very mobile planet now. There's a lot of things that we do. Things have to be easier to achieve and easier to understand and easier to use even on a mobile platform. So that consumerization has to come into play so people can be more people-like. And so companies that focus on those types of capabilities are, are, are really going to do well. That's Monzi Mirza from Splunk. Remote work solutions are seeing very heavy use. According to The Verge, Comcast reports that voice and video calls have risen 212% during the current period of self-isolation. Seeking Alpha thinks that Akamai, with its content delivery and cloud security solutions, is particularly well-placed to serve the needs of teleworking enterprises during the emergency. Zoom has also seen a sharp increase in usage, but the attention the teleconferencing solution is receiving continues to be decidedly mixed. TechCrunch reports that researcher Patrick Wardle has found two local security flaws in Zoom's macOS client. The pandemic has put a stop to at least one major acquisition attempt. The Wall Street Journal reports that Xerox has given up its attempted purchase of HP for the duration at least and quite possibly for good. The hostile takeover involved both a $30 billion tender offer and a proxy fight. It is, the journal observes, 
a cautionary tale of the effect the pandemic is having on large-scale M&A activity. The cybersecurity sector continues to seek to do its part in the crisis, offering security for healthcare organizations very much at risk from conscienceless criminals and secure, reliable connectivity for emergency medical facilities. The emergency has also, of course, affected daily life in many ways, beyond the immediately obvious social distancing and sheltering at home. And Reuters says that Saudi authorities have urged Muslims to defer the Hajj, normally scheduled for July, until the pandemic has passed. The kingdom has already suspended the year-round Umrah pilgrimage. Jewish communities are observing Passover under unusual circumstances, and Christian churches are doing the same at Easter. As the Baltimore Sun quotes one religious leader, we can't meet, but we will gather. Take care, stay safe, and stay healthy. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute, also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. We're looking at a story today from uh, the Naked Security blog by Sophos, and this is uh, Apple Safari now blocks all third-party cookies by default. What's going on here? That's fantastic. So a third-party cookie, when you go to a web page, you are, I guess, the first party, and the website you're visiting is the second party. Right. Mm-hmm. And that website can have little bits of HTML of, of, of itself that allow the loading of another party's cookies, third party cookies. And mm-hmm. this is how all the tracking happens is through third party cookies. Facebook does this a lot. Google does this a lot. Uh, Amazon does this like crazy. In fact, the other day I was buying an onboard diagnostic reader. Right. So I searched for onboard <laughs> diagnostic reader 
And as you um, do, as you do. Right. And <laughs> everywhere I go now, there's an ad for an OBD2 reader on every web page I load. Right. Now, right. He- here's the funny thing. I've already bought it. Yeah. From from advanced auto parts. I d- I'm, it, because Amazon right now can't promise delivery very quickly. And I needed it because my wife's car had an engine code on it. So I ran out and bought one. But this is how this tracking works, and uh, this is this is kind of how these large data brokering companies get access to the data that allows a dossier of you of every internet user to be built that is remarkably good. And now Safari is going to stop allowing those third party cookies by default. Now, Firefox has already been doing this since September of last year, 2019. And, mm-hmm. of course, the Tor browser has been doing this uh, since its inception, right? Uh, <laughs> From the get-go, yeah, right. yeah. But the Tor browser <laughs> is terribly, terribly slow. You know, so if you're going to use a, a, uh, a mainstream browser, it's actually not a mainstream browser. It uses the, uh, the, the onion routing network, which is why it's slow. Uh, so if you're going to use a mainstream browser, now you have another option. You have Safari and you have Mozilla. There's also the Brave browser, which blocks most of these third-party cookies. Mm-hmm. Um, in January of this year, Google announced that it would gradually kill third-party cookies in Chrome over the course of the next two years. Now, Dave, I make no secret about this. I'm a Google services user. I, I have an Android phone. I'm looking at this article right now on my Chrome browser. I mm. may very well migrate to Firefox over this. How come? Uh, because I think that Google has a real conflict of interest here. I think that they, that there is a, you know, because they are, in fact, one of the biggest users of these third-party cookies. That's how they make a lot of their ad revenue. So why would I expect them to expeditiously move towards killing these third-party cookies in Chrome? Well, and and the fact that they're saying they're going to kill it off over the course of, of two years, which right. uh, certainly in tech terms is an eternity. That is an eternity. Two years from now, the Internet will be a very different place. It's interesting that Apple has made this move and that it seems like things are headed this way and that perhaps it's considered a competitive advantage. I would think it is a competitive advantage. Um, I don't know if I can use Safari on Windows. I don't think they make any Windows products over at Apple. Yeah, I mean, Apple used to make a version of Safari that would run on Windows, and yeah. I suppose you could still go find an old version, but they haven't updated that in a while, so yeah. not, not really an option on the Windows side of things. I would not advise anybody go out and use an unsupported piece of software, particularly <laughs> as a web browser. I mean, that's just asking for trouble. Yeah. Right? Yeah. If it's not supported anymore and somebody finds a vulnerability in an old version, uh, that's going to suck for you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fair enough. All right. Right. Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, Dave. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. 
For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire.